Back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, which is a series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage, how it affects us today, how it affects uh, those Mormons in the past, and what we think about this information. If this is your first time tuning in, I would highly, highly recommend starting with episode one and working your way through the series. These series are meant to go in order. They're, they're trying to be as chronological as possible, which is really hard to do when you're talking about historical narrative. Anyway, today's episode is going to be a short little teaser based on one, one fantastic essay by William P. McKinnon. And this essay, um, is fantastic. It was published in the Utah Historical Quarterly. I'm going to link to it. But it was pointed out to me by uh, the wonderful historian jo- Joe Geisner. And Joe Geisner is actually coming on in a few days. So the next episode will be up in a few days. And I cannot wait. We are going to be talking about all the violence in the 1850s Utah that sort of came out of, uh, you know, the government tensions and how women were involved. And spoiler alert women and polygamy are a huge factor in the violence in 1850s Utah. And we're not just talking Mountain Meadows Massacre. That's the one that everyone knows. There are many other massacres and murders that we're going to talk about. I'm, I'm really excited. We're going to talk about Bill Hickman a little bit and the Destroying Angels and all of those really fun things. I mean, of course, they're fun now to look on them. They weren't so fun if you were a Mormon in 1850s Utah. But Joe Geisner, who is a lovely, lovely man, pointed me to this essay and to prepare for our podcast. And as I was reading it, there was a story that really stuck out to me. And so I want to read it to you now to sort of contextualize what we're going to be talking about. But I have to tell you, it's still shrouded in mystery. It is one of the most, I don't know, Victorian romantic um, sort of soap operas I have ever heard. And to be truthful, I had no idea that some of these things were going on in the Utah period prior to the 1850s violence. I had heard rumors of some of these things, but now we actually know some of the names involved. So let's get into it. We all know about Johnston's army coming into Salt Lake, and we're going to talk about that with Joe. But prior to that, the, the federal government was still sending troops to Utah for, for other reasons than just the Mormons. There were uh, Indian massacres that... Uh, the government sort of wanted to atone for or punish or even investigate. There was land and property rights issues and all of these things. Remember, Utah's considered sort of the Mexican territory. So there was a lot of exploration going on. Uh, and the one I'm going to talk about specifically is the Steptoe expedition. But um, I think he would be the fourth largest army detachment that the federal government would send out. Now, again, the bulk of this information is coming from the William McKinnon essay, and I'm going to quote heavily from that, so all credit goes to him, and I hope that you read his essay because it is delicious. Every single little morsel of it is delicious, so I'm going to link to that on the site. So the government has this colonel that they decide to send out to Utah. His name is Colonel Edward Jenner Steptoe, and he arrives in Utah 
on August 31st, 1854. Okay, so we're going to back up. Mountain Meadows Massacre was 57. That was when the threat of Johnson's army was coming. Three years prior to that, the Steptoe Expedition is really going to help us understand why all the violence occurred. And Joel Geisner is going to talk a lot more about Steptoe, but I want you to kind of, you know, digest this information so when Joe is talking about it, you can have some context to what we're going to be talking about. So, uh, Colonel Steptoe arrives in 1854 with about 325 men and more than 800 animals. He was considered the fourth and largest army detachment to visit Utah since the Mormon arrival. And each of these earlier detachments that were sent out had generated sort of unsettling incidences that would help grow to this tension. Um, and the army would call those, quote, civil affairs. And it's fascinating because as we're listening, I want you to hear how women's sexuality is again used to justify violence and to really move the needle of Mormon history. I just find the parallels so striking to how they were being played out in 1850s Utah, to how we talk about women and women's sexuality today. So the first case, the first incident that happens involved a three-day visit to Salt Lake City during August 1849. Robert, uh, Lieutenant Robert M. Morris and a small detachment of soldiers were on their way to California. And during their stay, they had um, some sort of melee involving... Morris's men and the town constables over Mormon women. Nine years later, the Apostle George A. Smith characterized what happened as a rape attempt. So he would say that these men tried to rape the women. And then the second incident before the Steptoe Army came would be during March 1850, when Second Lieutenant George W. Howland, an officer assigned to the Stansbury Expedition Survey, of the Great Salt Lake, which is out by where I live, they they left Utah to go to the Oregon Territory in California, and they left with a former plural wife of Brigham Young's first counselor, Heber C. Kimball. Okay? So that would have been a scandal. She leaves with this expedition. And the third incident before the Steptoe expedition was during the winter of 1853 to 1854. And it really... This starts to get into Brigham Young's own family. So you can see why he's starting to get really agitated with the U.S. government. It involved a member of the ill-fated Gunnison expedition, Sergeant John Tobin. He struck up sort of this weird, sort of awkward relationship with Alice Young, who was one of Brigham Young's daughters. And it wouldn't go so well. After he was discharged from the Army, instead... He married Sarah Jane Rich, a daughter of Apostle C. Rich, and he later abandoned her too. So there's supposed to be some sort of assassination attempt made on his life when he expressed interest in Alice Young. And um, there's still speculation on whether that happened. But we know that prior to, to the Steptoe expedition coming, prior to Johnson R. Army coming in, there are these sort of little skirmishes with the army. And every time, every time they involve women. So I want you to think on that, think on the, on the importance of that, that the U.S. government is concerned about the women's virtue in Utah to begin with, this, the rumors of polygamy, and now we see women's sexuality being the rope in this tugger war. It's, it's really a fascinating thing. And I do want to offer, I should have offered this at the very beginning, this, this uh, episode is going to have some 
discussions of rape and rape culture. So if that is triggering for you, you might want to turn this episode off. So let's get into the Steptoe expedition. Now, you have to remember Brigham Young is acting as territorial governor. He, you know, there's supposed to be like four-year terms and he is acting as governor. And people think that the that the president was sending Steptoe in to replace Brigham as governor. And of course, that's not the case. They were actually there to kind of investigate um, some Indian skirmishes that had happened. And the story that I want to talk about, we're going to talk a lot about this with Joe Geisner. But there's a certain interesting member of Steptoe's army. And he he would write fantastic letters, which is where we get a lot of this information. But he, you can see he's this young guy, and he is obsessed with women. His name would be Sylvester Mowry. You need to look him up, Sylvester Mowry, because he would go on to have this, this sort of distinguished army career. But there's something interesting about him. He is involved in a huge part of this conflict, and who knew that he alone and his sort of passions would ignite this sort of violence later on. He was from West Point, class of 1852, and he came to Utah, and he would write a series of letters written to Edward Joshua Bicknell, who was a fellow townsman of Providence, Rhode Island. And Bicknell was a 35-year-old married man, 14 years older than uh, the bachelor Maori, so 35 minus 14, we have a 21-year-old Maori, if my mouth is correct. From the letters, we are told that Bicknell kind of serves as Maori's long-distance, non-judgmental mentor and confidant. And so Maori is quite open about his feelings and his descriptions of, of the Utah period. Maori would be called a Gentile, right? Any outsider, anyone that was not Mormon was seen as a Gentile. So in September, on September 17th, 1854, um, just a few weeks after he arrives, with the Steptoe expedition, he writes to his friend Bicknell and gives his first impressions of Mormon society. Most of them involve his reflections on polygamy and sort of his own social plans. He talks about Heber C. Kimball's Sunday sermons, both to the troops and to Mormon women, about the perils of fraternization. So Heber C. Kimball is particularly concerned about this which makes sense because one of the early earlier incidences I was talking about describes one of Heber's own wives leaving with the soldiers. So in Heber's mind, these men are marked. They are dangerous. They are devils. And we can see them described as hellish, you know, in the future. So I'm going to read you a quote that Maori wrote to his friend. He said, quote, The whole looked very much as if he and Brigham were afraid we were going to F our way through town. Perhaps we shall. End quote. And when I say F, I mean to say he wrote the F word in his journal. Fatefully, Maori then reported that less than a month later, he had gotten himself involved with someone, a very important someone, Governor Young's own extended family. So Brigham Young has his oldest son. His name is Joseph Angel. And Joseph Angel would do a lot of his father's bidding. He's Brigham's oldest son. He would go on a lot of missions. He would also be a polygamist. He also marries a woman named Mary Jane or Mary Ann. Her name is spelled differently in two places. Mary Ann Ayers Young. She was also 21 years old, just like Maori. And she was from England. And she was married to... Brigham Young's oldest son, Joseph. 
Here is what Mowry says about her in his letter. Quote, Brigham's daughter-in-law is the prettiest woman I have seen yet. Her husband is on a mission, and she is as hot a thing as you could wish. I'm going to make the attempt, and if I succeed and don't get my head blown off by being caught, shall esteem myself some, end quote. After that, after he writes about his intentions, he also writes, quote, There are great many disaffected persons here, many women who rebel against the plurality wife system, Brigham's daughter among others. She says Salt Lake City needs only to be roofed in to be the biggest whorehouse in the world, end quote. So according to, from the soldiers' perspectives, these women hate it, they're oppressed, they're flirting with the soldiers, and they want to be rid of the system too. So in, in at least in Maori's mind, these women are victims and they're trapped in the system. He did, though, so Maori is not in trouble yet. He just has his eye is caught by, you know, Brigham Young's daughter-in-law. He he does go, They at the time, Salt Lake City is full of, you know, Brigham is trying to make it really classy. He's trying to have a lot of culture. So they had lots of parties. And uh, he Maori would write to Bicknell saying that, quote, the people here are social, gay, and like everything like parties. There are to be three parties, dancing parties this week, good music and pretty dancers. Many pretty women, well-dressed on occasion, giving a charming air to their assemblies at the tabernacle or chamber. If it were not for their damnable system of espionage, better than that of the old Inquisition or Napoleon's police, we could all get along well. They are jealous lecturers and revengeful in all that concerns women, I believe. In all that concerns women, I believe. It will require tact and shrewdness on the part of woman and man to conduct an intrigue successfully, but I think it can be done." End quote. So we already see that he has these intentions. And it's interesting that he's accusing Mormons of being like lecherous spies when he is talking about doing his only his own sort of intrigue himself. And again, he's a 24-year-old boy. He's fallen in love with this 21-year-old woman. Um, we do know that Heber C. Kimball months later would say to his missionary son, William, quote, Last fall, after Colonel Steptoe with his command came in here with Judge John F. Kinney, Mr. U.S. Attorney Jacob Holman, and many others of the poor devils, we treated them as gentlemen should be treated and invited them to our parties and habitations and feasted them and tried to make something of them. While doing this, they began to play with some of the skitty wits, alias whores. So... Heber is saying, look, we invite them as gentlemen, and they still go to whorehouses. And I want to do an episode particularly on polygamy and prostitution. There's a great book called Polygamy and Prostitution, and it really talks about this. So, I mean, almost as soon as Mormons enter the valley, prostitution enters the valley. It was a huge business. It was a huge um, means of survival for women, and it just cannot be avoided in the frontier. And so it was happening downtown. It was happening in many places. Uh, it's very much part of the story. And Mormons will c consistently make a distinction between polygamy and prostitution throughout the Utah period, and Gentiles will consistently make comparisons between the two. So Heber C. Kimball talks about them as being, you know, devilish and and all of that. So Steptoe himself is, I mean, there's contradictory reports about how Mormons viewed him, but it seems that he really tried to get along with the leadership, at least from my perspective. And on, we can ask Joe Geisner more about that. 
He um, it was described as a gentleman several times. He actually signed a um, a petition to keep Brigham Young as governor rather than Steptoe. And um, even Heber C. Kimball, with all of his misgivings for this group, described that $400,000 was pumping into the Utah economy just because of Steptoe's 300 men. So they're spending a lot of money on the Utah economy. It's being really good for them. He also wrote of Steptoe himself, quote, is quite a gentleman and a friend, as also are some of his subordinates. It was getting to be a little hellish here, but it is getting to be more heavenly now. And years later, you know, there is a story that I'm going to explain that gets circulated and becomes more and more kind of uh, scandalous. But we do know that Steptoe's here. He's trying to make the best of a bad situation. He's trying to get on with the Mormons. And his men are trying to get on with the Mormon women. There's also a rumor that Brigham Young like purposely entrapped this young Maori in, in with his daughter-in-law. But by all evidences, it seems that this was a consensual act that Brigham Young did not orchestrate. In fact, that he was trying in every way to end. And go ahead and read the essay. There's this stunning photo of Mary Jane Ayers Young or Mary Ann Ayers Young, um, who was the wife of Joseph Angel Young. So Steptoe is trying to court Mormon leaders and the army has this sort of un chaperoned access to Mormon women and girls, many who are claiming that they're super unhappy. And as we know, many women were struggling with the principle. It was new. And and I would like to point out that in the last episode, I talked about how in the Mormon Reformation, we see so many marriages, like, like 64% of all the marriages happen in these two years. That is literally two years before these incidences happen. So this is really going to help you understand why the Mormons were terrified of the army. So Heber's been hit. We know that there are general instances of women like being accused of, um, accusing soldiers of, of trying to rape them. So we have Maori. He is trying to see Mary Ann Ayers young more and more and more. She's married. She's young. She's beautiful. And they are in love. There is supposedly a riot that occurs as these men are seen with the women. The men, the Mormon men are getting more and more upset. There was a street riot where there was a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Um, the tension is starting to grow. And that on Christmas Day, the brawl was on Christmas Day. We have, after the brawl, we have Maori explaining... Um, sort of his pursuits quote he says we have every reason to believe that the authorities and the well-judging part of the community are favorably disposed towards us and have done and will do everything in their power to make our stay pleasant except in the case of admitting us quickly to the society of their women in this they are inflexible and perhaps wisely so for gallantry and polygamy are congenial associates end quote that was on christmas day new year's day he reports more on the status of his pursuit of Mary Jane Ayers Young. He says, quote, I wrote you about being in love with the governor's daughter-in-law and that her husband was on a mission. The affair went on quietly but swimmingly for several weeks. I met her privately, and I was just about to congratulate myself on my victory when Brigham found it out. A damned and famous report was circulated in that, in that city that I had been, quote, caught in the act by several persons. 
Here was hell. She was at home, not allowed to go out, frightened nearly to death, and this cursed story in everybody's mouth. I had only one course to pursue. I could not trace the story to its source, so I resolved to go to Brigham and tell him the story was an infamous lie. Infamous lie. Well, I called on him, had a long talk in private, which I will tell you sometime, and succeeded in getting her very gracefully out of the scrape, end quote. He then goes on to tell his friend, you know, how bad the situation is. He says, quote, Meanwhile, my reputation is ruined among the females, or rather among those who have the care of the females. Interesting that he says that. That the females, the women are... Um, his his reputation has ruined them, or it is more ruined by those who are over, who are controlling the women. This is how he views it. Quote, they think me dangerous, and I can't get a woman to look at me scarcely except in the ballroom. They will walk or ride perhaps with another officer, but the old people, although they treat me with much politeness, advise the young ladies not to go with me anywhere. End quote. So he's feeling bad. There's a lot of underpinnings happening at this time between uh, Brigham Young and Steptoe in political wrangling going back to the present, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, I became super curious about this incident because we know that Lieutenant Mallory is sort of marginalized because of his interaction. And I really wanted to find out how Mary Ann was treated. Um, and it was really difficult. So I've been, you know... I got up first thing and I went to the Darzi Pioneer and then stopped by the, the library and I wanted to find any sort of information on her and I've got to say it is disappointingly scant. So I'm going to make a challenge to any of you out there. If you can find anything on this woman, Mary Jane or Mary Ann Ayers Young, please send it to me. I really want to know what the rest of her life is like. I've done some research in some archives that, uh, Harold B. Lee Library and the George Albert Smith Library. And all we really know is this story that I'm telling you here. We have this brilliant photo photograph of her. We know that she would have six children, and we know that she um, would eventually be buried in the Forest Lawn Cemetery, which is actually the same cemetery as Michael Jackson. So uh, that's all we really know. So and that's in Los Angeles. So how did she get there? And her husband would have multiple plural wives, and that's a whole other story. So there's a great mystery to be solved here. So as I finish out the story, I want you to think about what this means. We know what Maori does, but we have no idea how the scandal, and if it was as public as Maori is saying, and as historical record says it is, what happens to this woman? What happens to her sort of reputation? So we know that by April... So he falls in love with her, you know, by September, she catches his eye. So the following April, we know that Steptoe has, has sort of moved Maori from Salt Lake City out to Rush Valley. And it was an isolated livestock range because, you know, Colonel Steptoe and Maori were afraid now that Brigham was going to murder him. And it's said that there in uh, Rush Valley, from the essay, there Maori consoled himself from the company of not Young's daughter-in-law, but Amanda Matilda Tanner, a 14-year-old who, with two of her sisters, would soon leave for California. And this is striking to me, too. The accounts of soldiers with women were young sometimes. There were 13-year-olds leaving and 14-year-olds leaving. And Maori now, he's super depressed. He can't go back for the love of his life. So he's consoling himself with this 14-year-old girl and her two sisters, and he's agreed to take them to California with them. 
Here's what he writes about it. Quote, Mrs. Young, I had to give up. Brigham sent word that if I took her away, he would have me killed before I could get out of the territory. He is a man of his word in little matters of this sort, and I concluded I had better not do it, although I went back to the city purposely to get her. We wrote each other affectionate notes. She swears she will run away to join me in California, and so it ends for the present, if not forever. You have no idea the excitement has been created about her and myself. Everybody talks about it. Colonel Steptoe sent me an order not to come to the city again and privately sent me word that if that it would not be safe as Brigham was raving mad about it. Some damned scoundrel had written to him that she was going with me and that I had come after her. She knew it would be unsafe at the last moment, told me so, and said she should wait. I am afraid I should have been fool enough to have tried to carry her off if she had said go, and it would have ended in her being brought back and my hair being raised. Better as it is. End quote. And then Mary goes on in his letter to talk about how this is affecting other men. He said, quote, more than half of the women want to leave with us or with somebody. Everybody has got one, meaning a woman on this side. Except the colonel, steptoe, and major. The doctor has got three, mother and two daughters. The mother cooks for him and the daughters sleep with him, end quote. And then he talks about uh, the expedition's quartermaster, Rufus Ingalls, who also is involved in something similar. He would fall in love with 13-year-old Rachel uh, Noel. And this, this event, Ingalls getting involved with Noel, was so scandalous that it had actually involved a gunfight that, sp- that would eventually end up in Salt Lake City courts. Quote, one of our party, Captain Ingalls, has been indicted and now is being tried in the city for abducting a pretty little girl. But it is damned absurd. She wanted to go. Her brother drew a six-shooter on the captain and your friend and subscriber, subscriber stepped in front of it until Ingalls could get out of the way. There was some talk about my coolness, saving his life, and etc., etc. But I knew damned well that he would not shoot me, and I didn't believe he would shoot at all. Nor did he. End quote. So... Here we see Morel sort of, or Maori sort of stepped in the middle of this scandal as well. So Steptoe, as these incidences are increasing, is really starting to grapple with the ire of the leaders because now Brigham Young's own family is involved. Heber's family was involved, so it wasn't that big of a deal, but now Brigham's own family is involved. And it is said at the time that up to a hundred women a hundred women in Salt Lake City would leave with the soldiers. So from their perspective, this is chaos. How could this happen? We do know that Maori didn't end up with Mary Jane. We don't know what happened to her and what life was like for her. We do know that this, the Steptoe expedition absolutely causes tension. You would see Heber starting to preach these fiery sermons about the people. This is where we see a lot of the rhetoric about how cursed the Gentiles are and how evil they are, and we want to stay away from them. Brigham steps it up, too. This has become a problem now because they are attacking their women. We see an almost biblical sort of parallel being drawn out. The way that the Utah men of this period would view it is sort of the biblical Sabine women story. They see... They see this army, this army of Gentiles and scoundrels sort of being like, you know, the story in Rome where um, the first generation of Roman men uh, abduct Sabine women and take them away. And of these hundred women, there are stories of women returning 
after they have been to California for a while and some wanting to come home and even more some wanting to go. And when they would come home, the story would be like they were abducted, they were carried away. And we don't know how true that is. It would seem to me that when we're talking about 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds, I am comfortable in my modern lens calling it rape. I'm comfortable with that. Clearly, the soldiers saw it differently. They think that they're being benevolent. They think that they're saving these women. And the Mormon men are saying that these women are seduced. I think it was Brigham who would say, watch out because they will take, oh no, it was Heber. He said, watch out. They'll take your wives and they'll seduce your children. And they, and in a way, I mean, that's how their lens was being played out. A lot of these women were really um, fascinated by these handsome soldiers who would come and court them and wanted to be with the local women. And a lot of them would be whisked away for, to California. There's a story of um, a girl that leaves to California and she writes her father and says, I want to come home and return to my family. So the father writes the letter to Brigham and says, my lost daughter needs to return. What can I do? Let's bring back my prodigal daughter. Brigham Young writes right away, which is interesting that Brigham would write to a little girl in California when he was such an important man and couldn't be bothered to even contact some of his wives. He writes this girl a letter immediately telling her to come home and she'll be protected and forgiven. She decides not to come home. She decides to stay. She would eventually live with a soldier. They would, um, they were married and they would have children and raise their family out there. So a lot of people found a better life out there. But um, the reason why I'm telling this story is because not only is it does it have all the sort of trappings of this Victorian soap opera, but I want you to understand how it affects the psyche and the pride of men who start to build up their, their celestial reputation by how many women they acquire. It's already an issue. We see as early as uh, the late 1850s, a lack of women in the territory. And when you have soldiers coming, Gentile soldiers who aren't Mormons, who have different beliefs coming in, and from your perspective, taking, stealing these women away, you can imagine what they did to their psyche. And I will argue that this is critical critical to understanding the violence that we're going to be talking about with Joe Geisner. And I think it's fascinating that women's sexuality is such a huge topic still within Mormonism. And it's possible that we are still haunted by the sort of history that has to deal with women's sexuality. So again, I'm only paraphrasing this brilliant essay. Please go read it. Go learn about it. And if anyone can find anything about Mary Ann Ayers Young or Mary Jane Ayers Young, please send it to me. I'm looking for a life sketch. The The best I could do was find an obit of hers, which um, didn't give me any information at all. I want to know what her life was like, what her marriage was like. I'm fascinated by this character. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode and you're going to learn some fascinating things. We might have to break it down into two episodes. Again, thank you for listening. I really enjoy your support. I'm so glad that you guys are enjoying these. I'm loving the feedback I'm getting. And we'll see you next episode.